Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, Harvest Kale. So glad to be uh, delivering God's word to you again here today. I want to uh, just continue to let you know, uh, pray for you regularly. Uh, continuing to ask God to show himself powerfully in your life and that you would faithfully be walking with him. Uh, we love you dearly and uh, think of you often. Uh, greetings from my family to you uh, in this way. Well, this morning we're going to go to God's word here today. And uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, take your copy, whether it's an electronic copy or a book like mine, uh, and let's open them to God's Word here today. That's our purpose over the next few moments. Uh, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And uh, so turn uh, your Bibles there all the way, last book of the Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 here today. Let me just... Um, uh, tell you uh, about a book that I read recently. Uh, there was a book by John Stott. It, the title is What Christ Thinks of the Church. And actually, I, I got to thinking about this um, just in regards to our church here at Harvest KL. Uh, what does Jesus think of the church? What does Jesus think of Harvest KL in particular? Well, the good news is we don't have to wonder uh, because God tells us in his word what he thinks. And actually, in the book of Revelation, while we uh, commonly think of it as a book, uh, a prophecy about the end times, and it for sure is that, it's a book of hope about that, uh, what we find in in the first couple of chapters, John tells us that he receives a vision from from the Lord in chapter one, and then in chapters two two and three, uh, the first couple chapters here after that, he actually addresses uh, churches. Uh, We call them the seven churches of Revelation, and uh, in each case in each of the seven churches that he has a message that Jesus has for that church that he's relaying to them, he tailors a message for that particular church in that time. But it's in the scriptures, it's in the canon of the scriptures, and so what we find is that in in John relaying this to the churches, the Holy Spirit also intended for us to hear uh, from these things here today. And so John is writing to actual churches that were in what is today called Western Turkey. And so some of the churches were experiencing deep persecution, like Smyrna. Others had moral debauchery and decline happening within the church, like Thyatira. Uh, One church, Laodicea, had had a problem of wealth worship. And Jesus is addressing each of the problems in these churches, and sometimes they uh, they cross over a little bit. But what I want you to remember here is Jesus is speaking in this text here today to real people in real churches with real problems. We need to hear of this today because we find that we, like this Ephesian church, often slip into uh, using the wrong measuring stick about what God thinks about our church And so the problem is we think we're okay, we think the Lord is pleased with us, but in fact, uh, Jesus is like, actually, there's there's a major problem that's going on. So in asking how is our church doing, what does Jesus think of churches in general and our church specifically, we need to know how are we actually doing. We need to know if our church is doing okay in God's eyes and in God's ways in in this. And many times 
when it comes to measuring our church and the health of the church, what we do is, uh, there was a phrase of a, an, an old pastor, a mentor of mine says, yeah, the church counts nickels and noses. Now, nickels are corn, coins here in the U.S., and so they count money and people. And oftentimes that's how we evaluate if a church is doing well and if it's healthy. And if there's a lot of people coming to church, if there's a lot of money being given to the church, then that church must be really pleasing to, to Jesus. So we, we vote with our wallet and with our feet. We, we, the money that we give, the place that we show up, if a lot of people are showing up, Jesus must be really happy with that church, right? Well, Jesus tells us in the text today that that's not how he measures if a church is going well. And that can be shocking to us sometimes. If he's not, if, if he's not really impressed with how many people come to church and how much a church is giving, what is he looking for? Today, we're going to study this first letter to the first of the seven churches in Revelation. And this church was in the city of Ephesus. Now, we're familiar with this church because we have a whole book of the Bible, a whole epistle that has been written. The book of Ephesians was written to the church in this particular city. So just a little bit about the city and the church that was there. Um, this is a major city in, in this time in the world. It is a alpha city, kind of like KL is an alpha city in the world today. This was a major city because it had a really important port that was a place where uh, lots of marketplace activity, commerce was happening, good business. And it was really the crossroads between the east and the west of the Roman Empire. And so this was the place where a lot of uh, trade happened and, and the city was very wealthy as a result of that. And, but, but the thing that it was best known for, in addition to being uh, a really good business center and an alpha city of the day, was that it had the Temple of Artemis. Now, in Roman, Roman mythology and, and the God system that they had, it was the temple of Diana, but uh, this was a temple that had been there for 700 years prior to the Roman Empire. And, and so I brought a picture of what this temple would have looked like, looked like to, to the best imagination we have it. It would have looked like this. This would have been an, an, one of the most impressive buildings of the world. Now, you might recognize its shape because you've seen the, in Athens the Parthenon, which has been re restored to some degree. And this temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens that we think of today. And so it was this place of grandeur and, and this place of, uh, of worship of one of the gods of the Roman religious system. And uh, now here, this is what it looks like now. It's just kind of an empty field with ruins, a few stones that are still there. In all of that, we see that at one point, this was a really significant place. And not only did it have a pagan temple, it was a place where one of the first churches was birthed and grown. Actually, we see that Paul spent two years in this city ministering to, pastoring this church, starting this church. He sent one of the best teachers that we know of in the New Testament, Apollos, to teach at this city. He sent one of his best protégés, Timothy, to go, go and be the pastor of the church in this city. And then we see that the apostle John was actually the pastor of the church later, later in the first century. And so this church had a rich history. This church was a, was a, was a seemingly a, a really good church. And Jesus actually, we're going to see here in a moment, actually says that they were, but they had a problem. The way Jesus measures things, they needed to realize that there was a problem. And the problem was with their heart. 
So today, the title of the message is Rise in Your Heart. We've been doing this theme throughout this year, and I've been asked by the others to preach along this theme. And, and this month, the theme is around the issue of the heart. And so, rise in your heart. What does it mean to, to rise and follow Jesus, as he said at the end of John 14, rise, let us go from here. What does it mean to respond in obedience to Jesus and to rise in our heart? Well, it's going to require that we return to our first love. My heart must rise in the first things, the, the first things it should love, if I'm going to be pleasing to Jesus. And so let me read our text here this morning, and then we'll explore it a little bit before we kind of see what it means for us and, and how we should respond today. So look with me. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among them, among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my, my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this, I ha this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What we see in this text is that Jesus commends this church for some things. He confronts the church on another matter. And then he invites them into really a glorious future existence. And in all of that, he's saying that the heart is going to be the thing that matters. So let me just kind of explain what we just read here. And, and so we get a better understanding of what, what uh, the Ephesus church would have heard when they got this letter and what they would have understood that Jesus was telling them, this is how I measure things so that we can understand how that works today in our own lives, in our church, and, in, and just in our personal walk with God as well. So examining the, the text here, we see here in verse 1 that uh, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and, and the word angel actually means messenger, and so he's actually talking to the pastor at the church of Ephesus. Write to the pastor at the church of Ephesus this. These are the words of, uh, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, Revelation is full of imagery, and it's, and it's helping us illustrate something. And here, he says these seven stars are really the seven messengers, the seven, the seven leaders of these churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And I just would want you to notice this at the very beginning, that the seven, uh, notice how the Lord is holding the churches and their leaders in his hand. Notice how there is this, this, uh, care for 
the church. And, and so when, when he says, I'm going to write this letter and I need to confront you on some things, know that as leaders of the church, uh, it's not like everything is going bad and going wrong because Jesus is so concerned. He's holding you in your hand. When, when you are overwhelmed with the leadership responsibilities, when you're overwhelmed with the task of, of getting the gospel forward through the church and helping the community understand that, know that God is holding you in his hand. He goes on, though, to say, I have a message for you in verse 2. He says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I, I know what is going on in your church. And in some ways, that's incredibly reassuring. That, that while sometimes it's hard for us to discern what's going on in the church, Jesus knows exactly what's going on in the church. And yet, also, it could be a little bit uh, fearful, like, like we can't hide anything from him. So he knows exactly what's going on, and that's what we find here. He says, I have some things to commend to you. I know your deeds. Jesus commends the church. And notice he commends them for three things. He, he says, I know your deeds. and uh, uh, your, First of all, he says, your toil and your patient endurance. So, so he says, I know that you have great zeal for the Lord. I know that you are working hard for the mission of Jesus Christ, that the gospel would, ex would advance, that there would be people brought into the church because they're believers who are discipled and equipped then to go out and make more disciples and plant more churches. And so they, we, Jesus commends them for the great works that they are doing. You see, it's not insignificant when our church is actually about the work of ministry. When we are uh, gathering for a small group, that is not a waste of time. When we're serving in some capacity in our church, whether it's teaching kids or leading worship or helping, helping our students understand the gospel, whether it's some sort of outreach program that we do, like God sees and knows all of those things and he's pleased. He commends you to continue to do the work that he has called us to here on this earth. But that's not, that's not the only thing he commands. He commands a second thing. He says, I also commend you for how you cannot bear with those who are evil, it says in verse 2, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. The, the second thing he commends them for is having not tolerated false teachers. And that's something that is, is actually really, uh, in, really uh, rare, I think, in our world here today. I think it's pretty common for us to just kind of have a, a pluralistic understanding that, oh, we all go to the same place, God loves us, and, and we just kind of tolerate teaching that doesn't express the things that are in God's word. Like, now, actually, there, there's judgment, and, and God does hate some things, and, and actually, there's an accountability that comes for that. And so it's interesting. He even says in verse uh, 6, uh, he affirms this again. He says, uh, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the Nicolaitans were teaching a, a false freedom. They were saying, listen, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, it's okay if you sin. Sin doesn't really matter because God takes care of it all. And so it actually, not only is it okay, like you should just live life to the fullest, however you kind of feel like you want to do. Kind of sounds like a familiar philosophy in our world here today and that, that there's no accountability, that God never will actually bring that to account. And so you can live however you want to because he's given grace. And he says, no, I hate that. He actually noticed very clearly, God hates the false doctrine of the Nicolaitans. God hates this idea that you would use grace to do whatever you want to do and not be submissive and obedient to what he has called us to do, which is calling us to Christlikeness and to the holiness that he has. 
And so we see this Ephesian church being, uh, being commended for this and saying, listen, you have good biblical teaching. Think about that. They've had Paul as their pastor. They've had Apollos as their pastor. They've had Timothy as their pastor. They've had the apostle John as their pastor. Of course, this church would be solid in the teaching and that they would be able to confront false teaching when it comes. But here's the third thing. It says in verse 3 that Jesus commends. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary in doing so. What we see here is that this church is enduring persecution. Not only are they busy about the work of going through the mission and that they're confronting false doctrine when they find it, but they're actually receiving persecution as a result of it, and they're enduring. They're patiently enduring and continuing in the work, and Jesus is saying, I, I commend you for this. So you see, this church is really an awesome church. This is a great church. I mean, they're hardworking, they're Bible-centered, they're courageous. I mean, this is the kind of church that I think that we want to be. This is the kind of church that we would even commend and say, this is a great church. But it's interesting because it's not enough, according to what the message of the, of this, to this church is. You can serve you can, be a, you can be against what God is against. You can endure when difficulty comes as a result of that and still be missing something essential and something important and something that, that when Jesus measures how the church is doing, like if this isn't actually being taken care of, those other three things, while commendable, actually there still needs to be something confronted. And so when God looks under the surface of these activities, of hard work and biblical teaching and patient endurance in the face of persecution, when he looks under the surface of those activities, he sees a problem. And so Jesus confronts, now lovingly confronts this church, and he's confronting us as well in verse 4. And he shows them the reality and the truth of what he sees, because remember, he knows. He knows us. And in verse 4, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Wow. Is that possible? Is it possible to be a church who works hard and teaches well and, and endures persecution and, and yet have forgotten your first love, that you've allowed the love for God to kind of slip away? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. It happened in this church in Ephesus, and it can happen here in our own lives today. You see, Jesus is saying religious activity on the outside is covering a heart problem that's happening on the inside. They had left their first love. So think about that. What is the first love that we have? Well, it, it's the love of God. It, it, it's, it's clearly commanded and, and, and taught, and Jesus says, you, you love me first, seek me first, seek my things first, and somehow... They were involved in religious, these religious activities, and it was covering the fact that what was really going on on the inside was a, was a wrong motivation, maybe hard work because it make, made them feel good, maybe biblical teaching because it made them feel prideful about where they're standing compared to others, maybe the ability to adore because somehow that made it morally right, for seemingly morally right. But in all of this, it was possible, uh, not just possible, but they had actually left their first love. So when we see here in the book of Ephesians, when Paul had written them initially, he had said in chapter 3, verse 17, I'm sorry, chap chapter 3, 
Oh, I was looking at chapter four. Sorry about that. Chapter three, verse 17. Uh, he says this, so that through Christ, though Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was Paul, Paul's second prayer in the book of Ephesians. He was praying that they would not lose their first love, that they would know the love of Christ. And yet by 30 years later, 40 years later, what we're seeing here is they had already left their first love. It had slipped away. And so Jesus is confronting the church kind of like when he confronted Peter after his resurrection. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. Massive failure. I don't know who he is, right? And then when Jesus met him on the shores of Galilee, Remember what Jesus did? He asked him, asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time he was rebuking and yet restoring Peter back into relationship with him. Three times Jesus responded, or Peter responded, Lord, you know that I love you. That story's in John 21. And that's what's happening with this church right here. This church, like Peter, had somehow slipped away and they were beginning to, to deny their love for Jesus. Not only did it happen to Peter, not only did it happen to this church, but it can happen to us. It could happen to Harvest KL. It could happen to you. Have you forgotten your first love? The love of our God. It's so easy to substitute knowledge for a warm heart towards Jesus. That seems to be what's happening in this, in this church. And when that happens, we quickly justify our hard hearts with well-intentioned religious activity. And so like this church, going about doing all sorts of good things, enduring even in persecution, confronting false teachers in all of that, and yet in that, we're substituting knowledge for a love for God. And we justify it by our religious activity. See, I go to church. I go to a small group. I pray. I, I, I give money to, to poor people. And, and that's not the measuring stick that Jesus uses. It's an outflow of the love. Those things should be done. But if the first thing, the internal thing, the important thing is lacking, then Jesus will confront that. So I came across a quote by the name of Michael Horton. He said this, We can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. Is that happening to you? Is it possible that you are distracted, your heart is reaching out for things that it loves, and listen, any good thing could become an ultimate thing and therefore distract you from really the love and worship of God. You could worship that thing. So good things like your family and being responsible and getting a, a good job so that you can help others, that could actually distract you and lead you away from a relationship and a love for Jesus. But notice, Jesus is not fooled. He knows. He knows. And so then he warns this church. Look at the end of verse 5. We'll come back to the beginning of it, but at the end of verse 5, it says um, that you're supposed to, well, let me just say the beginning, you're supposed to remember and repent and, and, and get back to the first things. He says, if you don't do that, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
The warning here is I'm going to remove you as a church if you don't come back into loving me first. You see, this matters most to Jesus. Your heart matters most. What's going on internally matters the most. And if you don't repent and change your heart, if you don't rise in your heart in, your, in following Jesus, if you just rise with activity or arise with a knowledge of God, Jesus says, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't actually complete all that I've called you to. And actually, I, I'll, I'll remove you if that's what's needed and find people who do love me first and foremost. Notice then that he invites us uh, to, to change. First, the invitation to change is in verse 5. Remember what you, where you've fallen. Repent and do good works as, uh, that you did at first. And then in verse 7, he says, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Listen, if you're listening to this, if you're not just listening with your ears, but your heart is listening and your spirit is being pricked and you're actually going to do what God has called us to, then I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. He says, I'm gonna, I will grant you my presence and, and, and eternity with me and just that eternal gift and inheritance and blessing that we've talked about even beforehand. Like you can have a relationship with God for eternity, which is the most significant thing that could happen if you would remember and repent and return to the, the, the first love. And so this invitation and the reward should cause us to respond. And Jesus wants us to respond in three ways to the invitation to rise in our heart that this passage is telling you about. So let me just point this out and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll call you to action in it. So three ways that you can rise in your heart here today from this text. First of all, rise in your heart by remembering how it used to be. Notice what it says in verse 5. It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen... Rise in your heart by remembering where you've fallen from, where, where you used to be. Remembering where, it was, where you were at first, your first love. Remember how that used to be. We need to begin rising in our heart by remembering where we started. Where we started in our relationship with God when Jesus first captured our imagination. And God did that work of bringing us to faith in him. We need to ponder what we first had, and that should lead us to practical action. It should lead us to see, wait a second, I've drifted. I'm far away. I'm not where I need to be. And then to take the first steps to return, to, to, to go back to that. And so to do that is, is to remember. Now, Oftentimes I think about this. I remember one time when I was a kid, I was in, I was actually pretty young and, and I was in this little boat um, playing near the ocean or, or on the ocean shore. And, and I remember I, I just was tired and, and I kind of just, it was the hot day, whatever, I just kind of dozed for a few minutes. And when I woke up, I was like really far from the shore because the, the current had caused me to drift away from the shore. I, I was so terrified I, I, and I knew immediately what to do. Like, just start paddling. And each little paddle, while it didn't seem to get me like immediately close to the store, just little paddles, eventually uh, a combination of those things brought me to the closeness of that. And, and so what we're saying is take small steps towards the light. Take small steps back into the love of Christ. The problem so many times is that we want a quick fix. 
like when I was drifted away from the shore, I want to take just one push of my oar and be immediately close to the shore. And yet what we need are habits that bring us, these small steps, habits that bring us into, back into a close relationship and a love for God when we realize that we have drifted from it. Jesus is saying here, healing is possible, but it has to begin with your heart. Remember, it says, therefore, from where you have fallen, remember that closeness of relationship that you had. And if you've drifted from that, remember where it was and start taking, taking small steps to it. And, and, and as we begin to convince and be convinced in our heart that I need that relationship and, and I'll sacrifice for it, that will change how we think about things and ultimately the, the will to take action in that. Remember the story of Bartimaeus who was blind on the road to Jericho? Remember what Jesus asked him in his blindness in Mark chapter 10? He says, do, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? What, what do you want here? Jesus was asking Bartimaeus, do, do you really want to be changed? And, and the reason is because if we desire to be different, if we desire to be like Christ in this, Jesus will do a miracle. He'll, he'll do a miracle of bringing us close to him. But, but listen, if, if you don't really desire that, he's just not going to automatically make that happen. Jesus won't help you unless you express your desire to him that you want to be close to him. So let me just ask you, do you want to rise in your heart? Do you want to take small steps of love towards God? Because that's really the first part of, of, of reconciling here, uh, the fact that, wait a second, I, I, my heart is, isn't as close as it should be to God right now. Do you desire to rise in your heart? Maybe just answer that right now as we continue to show you really the three things, that the steps of action that we should take to rise in our heart. So that was number one. Here's step number two. If we're going to rise in our heart, then we need to repent. We need a change of our heart. Notice what it says in verse 5. Not only do you remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, it says next, repent. And then that's what it said at the end of the verse in the warning. If you, if you've, if you don't do these, if, unless you repent, there, there is this, this warning of, of being removed from uh, being a church. Repent. What do we need to repent of? Well, I think it's the religious activity that's being talked about here that is covering over the reality of the fact that our heart is not fully in love with God. And Jesus actually confronted this when he was on earth with a group of religious people called the Pharisees. If you look at Matthew chapter 15, and it might be worth just turning over there for just a second, uh, and seeing here in Matthew chapter 15, we see that the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So what they're asking is, why do they not follow the religious rules that we have set in place? And they have, they have the Old Testament to back them up. Why don't you do these things? And he says, for, and this is the specific issue, for you let your disciples not wash their hands when they eat. Now, this isn't just like, uh, don't get COVID, wash your hands. 
This is a religious ceremony. This is becoming ceremonial clean to, to eat food. And why don't you follow the traditions? Notice, not even really what God's word says, but the, the, the things that we prescribe, all the additional religious things that we think should happen. Why don't you make them do that, Jesus? He answered and said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of traditions? <laughs> So Jesus, the Pharisees are asking Jesus why you let the disciples break their traditions. And Jesus shows them that they're actually reversing things. They said, why are you breaking the laws and the commands of God by making these traditions that, that are actually not in line with what God's word has to say? The Pharisees were using the law and tradition. They were using religion to break the commands of God goes on and says, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles your father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, he confronts a specific issue. If you, anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So what they were doing is he was showing them that your religious practices actually reverse the laws of God. The law says, honor your father and mother, but you've created a rule that says, if I give, uh, instead of taking care of my parents, if I say that I'm giving my money to God, I don't actually have to take care of my parents. It was a horrible, horrible interpretation and religious way of excusing themselves from what God's word actually had to say. And so he says in verse 7, you hypocrites. In other words, what's a hypocrite? It's somebody who does something different when everybody's looking, but on the inside, that's not who they are, right? So you look religious, your activity looks like God's going to be pleased with it, but on the inside, you're actually rotten. Your heart's rotten. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah the prof prophesy of you when he said in Isaiah 29, 13, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh, is that true of us? In vain they worship, they, they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The story goes on. Jesus calls a group, a crowd to him, and he says, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. He's saying it's not about washing your hands, and if, you, if it was clean to put the food into you, that, that's not what makes you, that's not what defiles you. That not, that's not what makes you um, ugly and sinful and, and dirty. The disciples came to him and said, Do you know that you've offended the Pharisees? And he says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be brooded up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. He's saying, listen, um, I'm not concerned about whether or not the Pharisees are upset about this uh, because I'm going to uproot them if they don't have the first love like the church in Ephesians did. Peter, recognizing that there was a little bit of mm, uh, misunderstanding here, not really understanding himself, he said, explain the parable to us in verse 15. And so Jesus did. He says, are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that's what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. 
He's showing them how, how following re religious practice re and yet not dealing with the heart is really a reversal of what God is trying to accomplish. And he's saying that's what you have to repent of. It's the same thing back in, in, in Revelation chapter 2 with the church at Ephesus. He's saying you're doing religious things and that's good, but your heart is not right. You've forgotten your first love. You're loving something other than me. And that's what you have to repent of. Repent of religious activity and yet not dealing with heart-level things. Repent of doing outward things well but not following Jesus on the inside. Repent of what's going on inside your heart. Let me just ask you by way of application, are there any ways where religious activity is covering over a hypocritical heart problem within you? Are there any ways where you sh make, make things shine a little bit on the outside, but you don't take care of any sort of sinful rottenness that defiles you on the inside? That's what you need to repent of. That's where you need to take the moment where you say, that's not right, and I can't, I need to repent of the fact that I can't actually even change that myself, and I need help changing of that. That's where you cry out to God and say, have mercy on me. And then God will slowly begin to restore you in that. And that's really what the third step is here. The third thing we are to do is to repeat the first works. Repeat the first things that God has called you to. It's interesting though, in verse 5, it says, after it says repent, it says, and do the works you did at first. But Jesus doesn't actually tell us what those works are. I think that's on purpose. I think because if Jesus gave us a list of first works right here, we would just engage in religious activity instead of really having our hearts changed. We, instead of repenting of our hearts, we would just repent of outward things. And that is not how Jesus measures if things are going well or not. And so in this, Jesus says, repent, or, or return, repeat, return to the first works. And it causes us to have to think a little bit about that. Uh, is, are the first works the disciplines of praying and fasting and studying the Bible and doing good things? Well, the answer is no. The, those, are, those are the result of the first work. The first work is, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then those things happen. And so the first thing is really found in the greatest commandment of Scripture. Jesus taught it to us in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. It's, he says that, that the first thing is the first command when he was asked, what is the most important command? The first thing is love the Lord your God. And everything else flows out of that. You see, if we're going to truly follow after God here, if we're going to rise and follow him, the first thing that has to happen is that we have to rise in our heart. We have to rise in our heart to the place where we say, I love God. And you say, well, how do I know if I'm loving God? Love is one of those things that you know when it's there. I, could, I can explain it. I, I could tell you, well, you're going to be obedient and you're going to do certain things. But, but listen, when you are truly and deeply in love, there doesn't have to be a question of whether or not it's there because you understand intuitively what's going on there when I'm willing to, to sacrifice myself and do those things for others. In all of this, when somebody comes to my office and they say, we're having problems in our marriage and, and we're not sure we even love each other anymore, 
the counsel that is that we always give in that situation is start start just doing little loving actions toward each other and, and the feeling will come and so really as we come to the spot where Jesus is saying Repeat the first things. Repeat the first things when you were first in love with me. It's taking the little steps of doing little loving actions that, and then letting those feelings fill in afterwards. So I was thinking a little bit about this, though. If I'm having a problem loving God as the first thing, how do, how do I conjure and make myself begin to love God again? How do I take these little steps? Where, where does that begin? Where is the actual source of saying, I, I'm going to take small steps towards the light. I, I'm going to tell God that, that I want to be changed in this. And, and then I'm going to do little steps of repenting to be changed in this. Where actually does that motivation, even at the very bottom of all of that, very much begin? Well, God's Word tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. If you were just to turn over a couple of pages, 1 John is not far from the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says this. It says, we love because, here's the reason why, here's the source, here's the very bottom of it, because he first loved us. Listen, if, if we're going to actually create a love for God... It's going to come because we recognize he first loved me. I can't love God unless I recognize he first loved me. I can't return and repeat the first things until I realize he first loved me. I won't repent unless I remember he first loved me. I won't actually begin to, to take small steps towards him until I recognize he first loved me. But when I see that, when I know that, that's the very beginning of where love actually begins. And so I want to actually explain this, not so much by telling you in my own words, but using the words of God to explain how this works. Again, it's in 1 John. I'm just going to, before verse 19, I'm going to start down in verse 7, and, and I'm just going to read through this paragraph and just think about, and I'll point out a couple places, where we see how he first loved us and where we can begin at the very beginning to see I want to love God more. I want to be changed, and, and so I'm going to repent of some things, but then this is how I'm going to first step towards him. I'm going to remember how he first loved me. So let me read, starting in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Where's love from? It's from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Like, you're not going to be able to love God unless you are born of God, born again. That's the conversion when you realize, I'm a sinner with no ability to, to save myself, but, but I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ, and, and, and that's that moment where new life begins in you, new spiritual life begins. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Again, the source of love. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his son, his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So here's a key. Like, how do I start to love God? It's I believe that he sent his son, who was Jesus of Nazareth, into the world so that I could live through him. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the payment. He's the one that's going to pay what was due on our bill because of our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's where love starts. If you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where love begins. Verse 18, so we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us, for, for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How does God love us? He sent Jesus to give his life in my place. Romans 5 says, no greater love is seen than that someone lay down his life for his friend. Jesus laid his life down for you. He loves you deeply and immensely. We, we see that we are then to abide in God. He's the one that gives us the ability to love. He's the one that gives us the ability to love God and love our brothers, love other people. And the reward is that on the day of judgment, we don't have to have any fear. Actually, in Revelation 2, 7, it says to the one who overcomes, love this, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <laughs> That's a wonderful reward. And it should motivate us to pursue finding how to rise in our hearts. So today, I'm challenging you. I'm calling you to recognize, don't measure things improperly. Don't measure things just with religious activity. Don't measure the church. Don't measure your own life in those ways. Rather, build your life on the love of God. Build your love in a way that says, I have to remember what it is to love God. And I have to repent of loving other things and being distracted by those other things. I have to then, then come to a spot where I am repeating what it means to love God. I'm repeating the gospel over and over in my life. God loves me. I know it because Jesus sent his son to give his life in my place, and I'm going to trust him in that way. Arvis KL, Jesus is calling us to follow him, to rise and follow him. And the very first thing, the thing of first importance, the thing that, that we should never let slip away is a first love for God. Let's build our life on that. Let me pray and ask God now to help us with that.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the teaching of your word. It brings clarity to how we are supposed to live, what we are supposed to do. But Lord, we come now to an important part of the sermon where we pray and we ask God, do your work. Whatever your spirit has pricked in our conscience that we need to be different in, God, would you help us to not just be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves thinking that that was enough, but rather put, our, put it into practice, Lord. Lord, the thing that you are calling us to, that we would remember what it is to love you, repent of any ways that we are not loving you, and then return to loving you first and foremost. God, would you do that work in our heart right now? Lord, would you remove any obstacle, whether it's our own self-will, whether it's some sort of fear, whether it's a, some love of something that's more than you, God, would you tear that out, rip that down, would you bring us willingly, Lord, right now, would you help each and every one of us to just simply say, God, I want the change? Because we know you won't change us if, you don't, if we don't want it. Lord, would you help us to repent fully, not hiding anything from you? You know everything. So, Lord, we want to bring it all to the light and say, God, this is what I have to repent of. And then, Lord, would you help us to take the steps of returning to you, following you? Lord, would you build a deep love for you within each one of us? Would you help us to rise, not just in religious activity, but religious activity that comes from a place where the heart is truly and fully after you, where there's no, no, nothing that is taken away from the pure love for you in these things? So, God, we ask you to do this work in our lives. Would you build our lives on this love that you have shown to us? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.